Welcome to the Spirit Anointing the Word, the podcast of Highland Church, Jamaica, New York, with Pastor Subash Cherian. We're so glad to have you with us today, and we're excited about God's Word because it gives us strength and hope for each and every day. Let's listen as Pastor Subash shares this powerful message. Our Father, we come again this morning to enjoy your presence, joining with the saints across the world, those that have worshipped you very early this morning and those that will continue to worship you on the other side of the globe later part of the day. We come, O oh God, to say thank you so much for your love, Abba Father, for grace, forgiveness, mercy, and kindness and all that through Christ our Lord. And because of the work of atonement and the blood, we have the boldness and the audacity to come before you, Almighty God, and to say, Abba, Father, Daddy, because you are through Christ our Lord. This is certainly a joy and yet a great, great privilege and responsibility. So even as we come, O oh God, we particularly pray for your people today, those that are here present and those that are watching. And Father, together we want to pray for peace in the Middle East. Father, let tempers be, O oh God, under control. Let, O oh God, we pray coolness prevail. And we pray that people would not spill gasoline into the already existing fire that would cast more lives and many innocent people from all the sides. We just pray, Lord God, that there would be a resolution, a peace. We ask of you, Prince of Peace. And once again, we thank you. Now touch lives today because you're ever-present to meet the need because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the Holy Spirit, you are here imparting grace, wisdom, strength, healing, and ministering to the lives, whether in the spirit, soul, or body, or in the out, even the welfare of your people. Thank you. We join together in giving you glory and honor above Father, Yahweh, our God, in Yeshua Mashiach, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen and Amen and Amen. Give the Lord a clap offering. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Hopefully next two weeks, I would want to address the present crises. And I know I would be touching on people's pet doctrines or ba basically favorite subject, but I have no ax to grind. I'm basically uh, standing on the Word of God. And again, as I look into the Word, I'm not perfect. In other words, I may not have all the answers, but what I look into the Word and nothing but the Word, I just want to basically say in the context of what we are seeing in the Middle East, I see a lot of people speaking out of their nationality, out of their color, even out of their persuasion, and making judgment basically because of where they see things coming. And I'm not talking about anybody else but the Christians, but I want to appeal on the basis of God's word. So I'm sure that I would offend people. And if you have any questions, please write to me, email me. I would want to answer you and to be able to explore what you would know that I don't know. But so in that sense of the word, it's important that we be able to give a word 
a relevant word in this time, so we would basically appeal it on the scriptures rather than what is our political or cultural or what would be our identification in any other way except the fact that we are children of God and we are called to be peacemakers. I want to say this, I will address a couple of things, God willing, what I won't be able to complete next Sunday and hopefully if it doesn't to the third Sunday, otherwise I'll just wrap it up next Sunday. So this morning I want to deal with particularly with regard to what has happened and it's a heinous atrocity that basically has no words except to say we all need to condemn this is what Hamas has done and in doing that it has flared up so much that is sucking oxygen out and many other people are entering and basically when you see a situation in a village you're going to find a dog barking because it has seen a thief that's in village A but right across in village B you're going to see dogs barking there only because of A, bark, but they don't know what they're barking about. Then in C, the dogs there in village C keeps barking and barking, and they have no clue why they are barking. They're barking because they're hearing barks from village A and village B, but you ask them, what are you barking about? I don't know. I'm just barking because I'm hearing all the barks coming all over. But as Christians, we need to know where we stand, and it must be first hand. And from the point of view of the scriptures, not aching something or others. But I want you to understand what took place a few weeks ago when you think about Hamas. That's basically what they do. Terrorists always create, and I want you to understand this. What they do is incredibly a smart move, a wicked smart move, because they want uh, Israel to strike back, and then basically they get the sympathy, and unfortunately uh, they're, be, they're playing to the, according to their games, and a lot of goodwill is being lost because of the reaction. We all were upset when 9-11 took place. We can understand people, uh, every one of us, who are very angry, and we were furious about what took place, and there's no question about that. But a year later, people lost their support for us because our reaction to the action was totally, completely erroneous. We know where these attackers, 19 of them, 17 of them come from, and we also know that Iraq had nothing to do with it. In fact, Iran was our vassal, was doing our will. But when we moved in there, it just created so much of horribleness that in the process, Christians in Middle East that have far out by, by many years was there before Islam, were there, and that was their place, that was their homeland. They were uprooted, they were killed, and again, it created such a reaction from people there it created what was the ISS, thanks to America, in some way to Israel and Saudi and others. But it had created a storm. But in the meantime, many good people, I mean not just Christians, Muslims, the Sunnis and the Shiites and everybody else included, were killed. And again, it was a wrong move. And I want you to understand that in reacting, we reacted with anger. But coming to this particular situation with Hamas, they were horrible. 
They had a plan, and they're laughing all the way with glee because they've stirred up an hornet's nest. That's what they wanted to do. And if Israel reacts wrongly, it's going to create problems for Israel on the long run. Many of the great supporters will lose their support. And particularly the zealots among the evangelicals are going to cool down, particularly when they come to the realization, oh my God, it almost reminds me of what Mr. Bush, the president, did as a reaction. So we need to pray for peace. We need to pray for Israel. But let me just give you a little picture of uh, the horribleness of uh, Hamas. Uh, the best I can relate this is like the Amalekites. When you turn to is, uh, Exodus chapter 17 and 8, uh, suddenly it was like, then came the Amalekites and fought Israel in Rephidim. They're going on their journey, and they were basically going through their own problem, their own situation, before coming to Rephidim. And then when they came in, it created a basically uh, murmuring and disputing within the camp. There was no water. They were complaining, they were griping, they were murmuring, and they were talking against Moses, and all of that. And then water came, and in the midst of that, what happened in the midst of all of the tension, in the midst of all that confusion, again, in Israel, there has been tension with uh, Mr. Netanyahu trying to overrule and take over the Supreme Court, and there was a whole lot of tension at that very moment, just the right moment, uh, at least in the plans of the enemy, they struck. And it is like the Amalekites, they came and fought with Israel, not going through all the scriptures, but you can find the scriptures. They attacked the weak, they attacked the women, they attacked the children, the ones that were sucking, and the old, and they basically did it from the back uh, so unexpectedly. And you can find the story of what happened from this passage in Exodus chapter 17, reading from verse 13 all the way to 16. And so the plan, of course, was Moses went up into the mountain to pray. That is important. And I want you to understand that is enunciated over and over again, even in the book of Joel. The priest needs to weep and cry and moan, and the people must join together, including the women, the children, the suckling. You can read all of that in the book of Joel, chapter 2. And so here's where it comes from. Moses went up to the mountain, and there was Ur and Aaron standing there. And when Moses' hands were tired, you're going to find the Amalekites were, Amalekites were winning. And when Moses' hands were lifted up, you find Joshua was able to win. And Joshua discomforted Amal the Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Verse 14 goes on to say, And the Lord said, Write this for a memorial in a book, and uh, I will utterly, for what they have done is horrible. Verse 14. 15 goes on to say, And Moses built an altar and called the name of the Lord Yahweh Nisi. And the most important thing is the name of God and is our banner, is our strength. This comes from the book of Exodus. What you're going to find is a horrible situation at your weakest, when you are least thinking, when you are basically not even uh, thinking about uh, what would come from, from the back, and always terrorists will attack you, not from the front. They always go in the back, and they always know where is the vulnerable point in which you can get hurt. 
And of course, the head made a swing round, round, uh, around, and Moses goes up to play with Aaron and Ur, and Amalekites selected the five finest men and fought with the Amalekites. And I want you to understand, to the level of their strength, it is on the prayers and on God's grace as he reached out to Moses to that level was the strength given to, the, uh, to Joshua to defeat the Amalekites. And here is simply an attestment by simply saying, this is an altar that we'll always remember, Yahuwah Nisi. Your aid will not come from Egypt. Your aid will not come from America. Israel is at the strongest when they look to Yahweh. There's nothing shorter than that. Every time they have looked to Egypt, every time they have looked to America for help, they're finding America is my help. From whence comes my help? And so Psalm 23 is take away God, and you'll find America in every sense. No, God is the strength of Israel. It is not America, it is not Egypt, it is nobody. They can stand on the strength of God, and it is for them to blow the shafar and call people to fast and pray, and God's help and God's grace, because this is a spiritual battle, and the Anakims are evil, put forward by the devil. What they cleverly do is basically reach out to the young people, able-bodied people, children, and others, and say, of course they have anger because they live like castaway and, and many of their rights are denied. So many of them are fuming, angry, and all needs to be channeled in the wrong way. And Hamas exploits that opportunity. And they basically are not many, but they basically can win the war and guerrillas will if we are not careful. And I want you to realize in so many ways you find this is Yehovah Nissi, the Lord, is our banner. It becomes a spiritual lesson to all of us in the New Testament as well. But when you look at the situation today, it didn't happen yesterday, nor did it happen when Israel was born in 1948, it happened way before. In fact, in Genesis chapter 16, you find what would be the con of this whole situation when Sarah could not bear and she suggested a better way, a roundabout way, and uh, voila, found out that uh, you could do it through my maid and Ishmael was born. And then 14 years later, when Isaac was born, there was tension because Ishmael was looking down at at Isaac and his mother was looking down at Sarah and that becomes a breeding point that was fed into and there are two people Ishmael and Isaac in battle. The way God looks at it when you turn to chapter 16 we don't need to go there God blessed Ishmael out of whom will come great nation and they are strong and when you look at God blessing Israel, Israel that is a different sense well God is God over both, because both of them relate to Abraham as their father. But if things couldn't get worse, it begins to basically unfold in a rather sad way. Not simply brothers, but twins. So when you go to Genesis chapter 25 and reading from verse 22 to 23, you're going to find, and the children struggled within her. And she said, if it be so, why Thus, and so she went to inquire of the Lord, and this is what God said to both the mother of uh, the two, the mother of both Jacob and Esau. 
He said, the Lord said, two nations. Remember, these are twins. When you talk about twins uh, from basically the same mother, the same father, but identical in that sense. And yet, look how separate they are. Two nations are in your womb. Two people, manner of people, shall be separated from your bowels, and one people will be stronger. Of course, the Arabs are much stronger in terms of strength and than the other, but the elder will serve the younger because God's hand is upon the younger, Jacob. What you find from then on is rehearsing the hurt and all of this going back centuries, it is sense of basically tension in the area. And that basically gives you a little bit of it. But when you come to chapter 36 of book of Genesis and turn to verse 12, you have another character brought in. And it says, Tima was the concubine of Elphaz, Esau's son, which is also called Edom. And she bare to Eliphaz Amalek. So less couple of verses tells you noble um, um, Amalek and so forth. They come with titles because they are a nation. They are strong, they are fierce. And of course, God's hand is upon both Isaac and Ishmael, although the right hand of fellowship is given to Isaac. Now what you see is a tension between the children of twins. When you think about it, it is Jacob and uh, uh, you think about uh, Esau. Uh, there's a big, big, big anger. It gets exasperated. When Jacob, literally in the eyes of Esau, steals the blessing that was meant to him, and for that, Jacob had to pay a price. He had to leave for 20 long years in exile. And he was not able to see his father's death, nor was he able to meet his mother who always favored him. In the meantime, it was like an exile for Jacob. But Jacob got the blessing, and it was not... He did it by hook and crook, but literally, when you look at God, re reached out, and his mother understood that better than Isaac the father. Two different people. One was a hunter. He was strong. He's the all-American man who goes out for sport. Jacob was more like a mama's boy, more like wanting to do things in the house and so forth. Isaac wanted someone like, uh, like Esau and go out and get venison. And of course, you find out that Jacob can't cook, even though she was there close to Mama. Mama makes this venison. And so all of this is so much portrayed out. And in the meantime, there is already tension building up. So I want you to understand, in this mix comes the grandson of Edom or Esau, who is called Amalek. He creates a wreck, constantly creating problems. Very interesting when you look at what would be uh, numbers coming back to a context that Amalekites are, uh, basically comes uh, this time not to the front door, through the back door, but through the front door by a mistake that, is, uh, that Israel did. So when you turn to Numbers chapter 13 and reading from verse 32 to 33, they're on their way, and let alone what took place in Exodus chapter 17 at Rephidim, here they were chiding, complaining, gossiping, murmuring constantly. Twelve of them were sent to spy out the land, and God said, this is going to be your land. They went down, they saw grape, they saw things that were amazing, and then suddenly they woke up and said, who's those guys? They look like giants, and so you find they were of great stature. They were like giants to the eyes of these people. They made a decision there and then, and this was a decision of total disobedience. 
of total what is called unbelief. And so when you turn to verse 33, you come to this passage, there we saw giants, and we were like grasshoppers, but they were giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers in their sight. So they basically came back with a divisive report. Only two were able to believe God. By the time they come to chapter 14, they spread this false rumor. And this is one of the interesting fact of the war, false rumor. Rumor, rumor. They basically melted the hearts of the others, the ten of them, and lies travel faster than truth. And the whole rank and file of the people of Israel was so angry, and they were even angry with Moses. And God just came down, and he said, okay, I had enough with you all. The number of times God disciplined not nations, Israel. The number of times God spoke out against Israel. You, I mean, they will tell you so many good things, but for every good thing, there are ten times that God spoke against Israel. To the point, twice he said, I'm going to divorce them. That's how upset. At one time he said to Moses, you know, you walk away. I'll create a new people. I forget about these guys. They're going to die down there. And Moses said, no, no, no. You can take me. I I'm not going to do that. What will the people of Egypt say? What will others say? And that is really a prayer warrior there. What you find is when you come to Numbers chapter 14, the dice was cast. The people of Israel now were saying, we're going to go back and attack them. And Moses said, it's too late, sweetheart. Don't do that. You'll be murdered. No, we're going to go that. Moses would not let them take the ark of God. Neither would Moses go. He stayed put. There where he was. So when you come to chapter 14, verses 43 to 45, let's read. And the Amalekites, this is what Moses said, and the Canaanites are there just waiting for you. And you shall fall by the sword. Now these people are not coming from the back door. They're going right in uh, to attack the Amalekites. And God said, and you shall fall by the sword because you have turned away from the Lord. Your strength was me. You have turned away from the Lord. Therefore the Lord will not be with you. Your strength is the Lord. And church, you got to be connected with, the, with God. You can't take the Bible and chase the devil by just saying a few words. You got to be connected to the Lord. So one thing is very important. An intrinsic relationship in the Old Testament, Yahweh and an intrinsic relationship, our Father in heaven, through Jesus Christ, because he's the wine, the true wine. Now, when you look at what you find in verse 44, it says, and they presume to go up into the hilltop. No worry, God is with us. We are a favorite people of God. Nevertheless, the ark of covenant of the Lord and Moses departed not from the camp because Moses knew this is not God's program. And when you turn to verse 45, then... The Amalekites came down. This is front to attack. This is not from the back door. You come into our parlor. You have come and said the spider to the fly. We've got you now. And the Amalekites came down and the Canaanites which dwell in that land and smote and discomforted even unto Hamah. Not just the Amalekites, but the Canaanites and the troubling people joined with the Amalekites and slew them. Great was the slaughter. 
What I want us to understand, us to understand is these Amalekites basically have an anger issue. They have an unforgiveness in their heart, and they're going to spread it, and there are always susceptible young people who can get this, and that's how basically how the extremists work. They wait to get and infiltrate and, and touch the heart of people, just in case you think that it's only in the Arabic world, my friend, I would tell you that is extreme uh, extremist in Israel, just as there are in the Arabs. There are extremists everywhere, even in Africa, right? In India, we have a party that's ruling that literally killed Gandhi. And I want you to understand this very fairly. When you talk about extremists, not the whole nations are extremists. Just a few, that's the cancer cell. So they're dangerous, you've got to identify them, and you've got to do a surgery on them. But when you bring the whole nation in, you're actually hurting a lot of people. Now let me, I mentioned the last time, so we figured out KKK is a lot of them in South Carolina, and somebody from the church said, I'm from South Carolina, Pastor, you think I'm a KKK? I said, just give you an example. You could be from, let's put it somewhere else in South. But what if I were to say, bomb the whole darn people down there? That would be wrong, wouldn't it? Because there's a lot of good people there. So not everybody is an experience, but sure enough, if left themselves, they would spread like cancer. And so we need to identify this sort of thing. Going back to history, you're going to find what is so remarkable is in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 9, Samuel had told Saul, the first king, go in and finish up these people because this is what needs to be done. But Samuel and the people spared Agag. Remember this name, Agag. He's an Amalekite and he's the king of Agag. And the best of the sheep and the oxen and the rattlings and the lambs, so forth. When you think about the past history, you must realize that Israel has made the same mistake as America has made. We fed the ISIS. We fed the Al-Qaeda. In fact, we were part of the creation of Al-Qaeda, and they've come back to haunt us. So whatever we do uh, bad comes back to haunt us. And that's basically, Israel will not admit it. Israel literally brought about this Hamas because they wanted to get, get rid of um, PLO, which is basically... Asad Arafat was a secular guy. Uh, he's not Islamist as such. So they created an Islamist party so they could get rid of And now that has come to haunt them. In the meantime, one of the policies of what would be the British had called divide and rule. Others have a, divide, a rule called the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So we got to feed those guys, not realizing these guys will be too powerful and come back to haunt you. So what you're going to find is, yes, they were even helping ISIS, and the whole reason was get rid of the secular government of Iraq and Syria, and then these guys will do it, not realizing ISIS will come to haunt you as well. But I want to make this very clear. Hamas is a national territorial organization. I understand Prime Minister Netanyahu put up the flag of ISIS and says, these are ISIS. It's reaching out for sympathy because ISIS killed a lot of Christians. But Hamas and ISIS are very different animals. One is a local, 
literally, which is so patriotic, they hate others, the dominating factor. ISIS is international. You have Americans who are in ISIS, so you have Russians, Chechnya people who are there, you have Israelis who have gone down there, you have Europeans going down. It's, a, it's an international, very different. But both of them, nevertheless, whether you have a little puppy dog creating problems in, in uh, local or whether it's a mad tiger let loose uh, called ISS, both equally can be dangerous, but they are not two. In fact, if ISS gets hold of uh, Hamas, they will literally kill them for not being Muslim enough. So you need to understand there's a lot of um, propaganda that really we have to uh, understand. But Israel is in a very bad situation. We have gone through that. Uh, not only we have gone, India has gone through it many, many while I was living there. The Bombay was bombed, and these are extremists, and Russians have gone through that with church now. To the credit of Putin, he actually put a mission out and really won the church now, who created all this rumpus to be part of the group, and they are really supporting this man. Strange bedfellows, but nevertheless, he was able to manage what others can't do. So when you think about this, keep in mind the Amalekites are like cancer. They're poisonous. They have to be identified, and you've got to really deal with them like cancer cell. Uh, that is not to say genocide, but I'm just telling you it's dangerous. You've got to identify them. But in the Old Testament, that's exactly what they did. So when you think about 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 9, Samuel had told them, this is your job, finish them, because they won't be a problem. But Saul decided to leave and let Agag, and remember the name Agag, he'll come to haunt you later. He let him go, but when Samuel heard about it, when Samuel came back, of course Samuel was very upset, and he dealt with uh, the Agag, the king of Amalekites. That's not the end. Obviously, they escaped. Obviously, this Agag has many other children, just as hateful as he is and full of venom. But where do you see them? You see them every now and then. In fact, there was a time in the life of David, the dearly beloved psalmist of uh, God, who actually moved out from Israel and teamed up with the enemies of Israel. There's a reason, because the king of Israel... Saul was hunting out and trying to kill David. So he sought with the people in Gath and the Philistines, and during one of his excursion from place where the king of the Philistines had given him place to live, called Ziklag, they went out, and you can read it from 1 Corinthians chapter 30 and verse 1. This is what happened when they came back to Ziklag. So here in this passage, for, uh, first, Corinthians, first Samuel chapter 30 and verse 1, I'm sorry, First Samuel chapter 30 and verse 1, it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziglag on the third day, they had gone out. When they came back, the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag was smitten. They had smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and took captives again, the women and the children. We don't have time on verse 6. They were basically talking about killing. This is his own people. There was so much confusion, so much of bickering, and they were blaming David. And David was greatly distressed, and so he cried out to God and, God, and said, can I pursue them? And God said, sure. 
And that is God's direction. And David pursued them. To make the story short in this passage, in verse 18, David recovered all. He brought back his wives, two wives. He brought back all the others. And everyone brought their family back. Now, David definitely heard from God. And he had to do what is an operation for one. Number one was to rescue the family. And number one, number two, to be able to uh, deal with the Amalekites. He didn't do it publicly so that the Amalekites could kill all of them. He did it in a way. He pursued them all the way at night. The Amalekites didn't even think that someone would run at such speed after them. It was a surprise move. Just like they surprised Ziklag, David surprised them. And they got a Midianites who tell them, okay, these are the Amalekites. Where do they live? Where are they? And boom, before you know it, they were surrounded and they were dealt with and brought back. Then Trump and say, we are coming at 2 o'clock in the morning and wait for us. And boom, there's going to be a fight. So you're going to find, uh, amazingly, this is a situation that takes place over and over again. You hear about the Amalekites again. When you turn to the book of Esther, and now he is a guy who's elevated very high. Esther basically won the queen beauty pageant, and in a roundabout way, but God was in it, although the word God is not mentioned in the book of Esther, every page is that God working in the background. And so you find Esther coming into the palace and literally got up to be the queen. And of course the king had many mistresses and so forth, but she becomes the queen. Why is she there? Because her position keeps the Hebrews alive from dying. It all had to do with one man, full of women and hatred. And of course, the man is not just a terrorist. He's a big man in high position. He doesn't have to hide and scream. He's got all power, even with the press of his ring. He could act for the king. So when you turn to Esther chapter 3 and verse 1, you are faced with a scenario. These things did King Ahasuerus, and he promoted Haman, the son of Amadiata, the what? The Agagite. Oh my God, you remember that king, Agagite? Yeah, one of his great-grandchildren. Do you think he ever forgot? No. Do you think he ever forgave? No. Do you think he still had that venom? Of course he does. But he's in high position, advanced him, and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. At one time, he said to the king, give me your ring. I want to make this promulgation. And the king trusted him so much, he gave him the ring. The ring simply said, by such a strategy, the Hebrews will be slaughtered. Why? Because he was upset with Mordecai. He didn't bow before him. I think Mordecai should have said, hey, now, I like the African way of salute. He should have done that, saved everybody there. But again, that was a matter of will. And this, uh, this man, Haman, was so angry. Of course, you understand why his anger, because he is basically the Agite going all the way back, and Amalekite, in fact, one of the great-great-grandsons of the king, Agite. All through history, you're going to find that problem. But now I want to just say that you don't have to be physically an agite. You could have the spirit 
of a guide. When you turn to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is New Testament. The book of Revelation is way beyond Old Testament. And yet, God mentions two people, Balaam. You mean to say there's a Balaam in the, in the Revelation? No. He's giving you a picture of something that speaks in the New Testament. And he's talking about Jezebel. Jezebel in the Old Testament comes to this. It is the spirit of Jezebel. And the spirit of Balaam that makes money. So understand that. But when you turn to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 16, you're going to find this character. And Herod, uh, let's go to verse 15. It's a very interesting person. And there he was until it might be fulfilled. But, but when you turn and believe in chapter, let's read chapter 2 and verse 16 to 18. It says here, And Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wrath and sent forth and slew the children that were in Bethlehem. Excuse me? You're the king and you are killing the children in Bethlehem? That's part of the territory. How could you do this? And in all this caused two years and under according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the Lord. Verse 17 goes on to say, then was fulfilled which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. And what did he say? He said, in Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentations and weeping of mothers over their children, and mourning Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. In fact, you can find that in the book of Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15, the words that Matthew brought forth. It says, thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentations and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they are not. And that is the sad situation. Let me pause and tell you, Herod is a great man. He was the one who built the temple. In fact, after Solomon, the great temple that was built, there was one temple during the time of Zerubbabel, not really worth talking much about, but still a temple. But the time Herod came, he built a magnificent temple. He was a builder of great things. He built things of architecture. He built theaters. He built sporting things. He built fortification. And he was made king by the Romans. And he was there. And he was a strange man. While he was very creative, he was a very sensitive a man who was very intimidated. And he carried this feeling as even ruling over basically this place that the Rome had sent him. The passage that you read actually is called in history the murder of the innocents, simply killing children, innocent people that were not involved at all. Why was he upset? He was upset because there's going to be a king and these wise men didn't tell me where the king was then blast all these children under the age of 12. He found a solution. It's collective murder. Because you can't find that one king, let's make sure there's none in this territory called king. What you find interesting is Herod is called Herod the Ituman. He's a son of an Edomite. He comes from his father, the Agite. Oh, wow! He literally is a terrorist himself. 
Yep. And that blood is in him. And so when it comes to anger, it doesn't matter. Somebody has to be taught a lesson. So if you can't get the Chinese, get the Vietnamese. Wallah, Vietnam War cost so much lives. If you can't get hold of the Russians, Ukraine. Because we don't want to raise those guys. Let's go to the nearest one. You're going to find over and over again, and this is an agrite. There are Christians having an agrite spirit. When you think about the crusades, when you think of the retaliation, I heard for one from an extreme, I don't know what he's called, he's called evangelical, but I think an extreme right wing, kill all the Iranians. Finish the answer. Excuse me. There's the same people who said, kill all the Iraqis. Kill all the Syrians. Complete blanket killing of everybody. Because we can't get who the guys are. They're hiding between. Just kill the whole lot of them. Israel has the most sophisticated weapons. They can actually pinpoint in their camera from space the most unbelievable. They know exactly what things are, where things are. In fact, when you see something of a cartoon, it's so strange. You remember David with a sling? And then Goliath armed? The story is reversed. The kid with the strings called David are actually the Garcians. And the one armed to their teeth with all the weapons is Israel. Israel can fundamentally set the whole Middle East on fire. They have the atom bomb. So when you have such power, be very mindful. Because you could tread on other areas, no matter how much you are supported by, because there will be a Middle East on flame. You are going to suck in all the Arabs, which basically are becoming very moderate. At one time, the Saudis were supporting all the Islamists, but now the young prince is against it. He has changed. And so you find UAE and Muscat and Bahrain. Maybe one place uh, basically would be a little radical supporting, but majority have become, including Egypt. Don't anger them. Because at the end of the day, they're going to come in. Because they can take it to one point, but then when you go beyond, blood is blood. They will stand with their brothers. But what the West doesn't know, we have such large numbers of Muslim immigrants. They're not Arabs. It's all over Europe. They outnumber the Jews in Europe and they outnumber the, Jew and the Jews in America. When they want to create a problem, they could don't infuriate anybody. Did I say that again? Don't infuriate anybody. Try to do it as much peacefully. Isolate these buggers. But don't blast the whole nation. People can have the spirit on a right, even a Herod, who's supposed to rule over Palestine. So you need to understand, while my support and sympathies are with a nation that's gone through so much, I'm standing afar and say, oh my God, how could you do this? Didn't you learn a lesson from America? That's the last thing you should do, carpet bombing. In fact, 2009 or 2008, 
Mr. Netanyahu looked for the exact time when children will leave school and children will come out of school and then bomb the children. It is like the murder of the innocents. Why? Because they're all going to be, would be. No, 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 no. Give them all an opportunity because you never know what God can do. I want us to realize very importantly, when you look at these passages, God is very clear. So clear, he tells you that Hamas, or put in the biblical sense, uh, the Amalekites must be dealt with. Of course, they're a the cause of all problems. So if you have cancer in a particular area, don't cut the whole body. That is an area that to be surgery. So when you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 17, listen to what God's saying. Remember what the Amalekites did unto you, by the way, when you were come out of Egypt? Don't forget. They are the cause of the problem. Remember what these 17 or 19 hijab came in? Syrians are not the problem. The Arabs are not the problem. I want you to understand these are good people, every nation that are bad and good. The bad is a few that are rotten apples, extremists. And when you look at what happens in, in uh, Gal Gaza and the West Bank, they're all not murderers. There are good people, there are Christians, there are secularists, there are practicing Muslims without hate, and then there are also the Hamas within them. But you can destroy all of them. But remember what the Amalekites said, deal with them. You've got the most sophisticated weapon, deal with them. But America just said, carpet bombing, carpet bombing. It has caused destruction. If there is a Nuremberg trial, there's a lot of American presidents that would be put up there for trial for the murder of many people. I want you to realize something very important. When you turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 2 and verse 5, look at what God says. He says here, meddle not with them, for I will not give you their land, no, not so much as a footbreadth, because I've given Mount Seir to Edomites, the Esau, for a possession that's not your possession. I've given you, and I'll talk about it next Sunday, the possession given to Esau, the possession given to Israel, and the possession given to the land across, and the 12 princes. Big princes will come out of that. Is today the reality. Don't look at it with colorful extremist eyes, and particularly evangelicals. They don't like this, they don't like that, and they say, kill them all. No. Look at it from the eyes of the Bible. So when you turn to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 7, look again what God is saying. Thou shalt not abhor the Edomite, that is Esau. That's your brother, for he is your brother. Learn to treat him like your brother. Thou shalt not abhor the Egyptians. Remember, the Egyptians were the one who gave you shelter. And when Jesus had to escape from this barbarian called Herod, where did he go? His mother and father took him to Egypt. So, thou shalt not abhor the Egyptian because you were a stranger in his land. Don't forget that. So, God will deal with the nations that come against you, but don't strive and create a whole volatile situation where the whole place blasts in fire. It takes one man to carry a suitcase bomb and the whole city of Manhattan can explode. 
People are raving mad when they see children being killed. Mothers crying in drama like they cannot be comforted. The hearts of people will be welled with anger because they look at it and say, I can't take it anymore. Put my name and I want to be Hamas as well. Put my name, I want to be ISIS as well. They may have reasons. We created the environment for them to hate us. So when you look at this passage, it's incredible. And yet God says in Obadiah chapter 1 and verse 10, you can read the whole of Obadiah, and you can read what God says, for your violence, that is the Amalekites, that is the Hamas, against your brothers, Jacob's shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Shame on you, people are saying. Shame on you what you have done to Israel. Now, they're looking at Israel and saying, for their action, shame on you, killing children and mothers. How could you do that? It is not collective damage. You should not have collateral damage. Seek and remember the Amalekites. Root them out like cancer, but don't destroy the whole body. It is very important. I know the evangelicals keep harping on God loves Israel, God loves Israel. The more I read the Bible, few words here and there, but the majority of words is uh, described against uh, Israel. God doesn't go around and correct Syria, and, and, but in relationship, what they did. But God brought, he said he brought the Babylonians, he brought the Assyrians, and he said he'll deal with them. But why would you do that to teach Israel a strong lesson? They need to depend upon him. So when you look at all the calamities, God said, I did it. Then he said, I will remove the caterpillars and the palmer worm and the locusts, which I brought to you. Excuse me, you brought them? Yes, I did. I did. I did. I allowed that. There's a reason for it. But I want us to understand time and again, there's so much of passage, God encouraging his children like a father would. And when, like any other father, children disobey, boom, they don't hit the neighbor's child. They hit their child because their child needs correction. And that you find in Hebrews, discipline is good for you. Because a father loves you, you're not a bastard. That's the reason God corrects you. So there are passages when you read in in the book, particularly in these passages like Jeremiah and uh, Ezekiel and Isaiah, while Isaiah speaks a lot of good things, but he also tells them the voice of the Lord is against you. Oh, but Ezekiel is like crazy. He says, you know what, I'm going to do this to you for what you have done against me. This is not talking about Syria. He's talking about, and God will punish those he sent and he will deal with them. But God's hand is heavy on his people. Judgment, the Bible says, in the New Testament, must first begin in the house of God before he deals with others. So you're going to find in Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 37, you can read the entire chapter, I don't have time, and the peaceful habitations are cut down because of the fierce anger of the Lord for on you. And Jeremiah is a weeping prophet. They didn't like his message. They locked him up. So he's saying in Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 29, and look at what he says. 
He's saying, is my word not like a fire, said the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? That's my word. Oh, they hated him. They put him in prison. And what did he say? He simply said, didn't God tell you? You can read the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28. I'll bless you when you're going out. When you trust me and obey me, I'll bless you in your field. I'll bless you in your basket. I'll bless you. But from verse 15 onwards, and if you disobey me, I'll curse you. Nations that should be under you will be over you. You will be going out and you'll be cursed. You will be going in and you curse. You feed strangers and strangers will hate you. This is God's word if you do. The ball is in your coat. And Jeremiah is just telling them, this is what, and the false prophet is saying, don't worry about it. You have a great deal with God. You know, you are up there with God. Don't worry about it. You're special people. That's what the church, some people say. Sin, no problem. God loves you. The blood of Jesus covers you. Really? So it is a harsh message, and they locked up Jeremiah. Ezekiel is another man. In fact, Ezekiel went, unlike Jeremiah, he went and he was by the river Chabar when he writes this, and his words are sometimes hard. If you take Ezekiel chapter 7 and verse 1, this is what the Lord says to you. It begins. And he's taking to Israel. And verse 23, he simply says, uh, 7 and verse 23, this is what he says. I'm going to do something. Make a chain for the land is full of bloody crimes and the city is full of violence. You got false weight, you got false balance, you treat the strangers wrong, you do this, you do that. I have, I'll make you pay. What you're going to find in a remarkable way is God is using the same system in the New Testament, and the Holy Spirit is the one that will comfort you, will also correct you. Take it and come back to the Lord. But I want you to understand something that I find in the Middle East that gets volatile is because of a law that is misunderstood. And this is the law for Moses gave to Israel. And of course, uh, the prophet of uh, Islam used the same laws and incorporated into the, into the uh, Islamic way of life. And so when you look at what Moses said, and rather funny because you can find this uh, many times over. Uh, if you read Exodus chapter 21 and verse 24, look at what it says here. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot. So if you hit me, I'm to wipe you, all your family out. And then they realize and say, yeah, I'm going to wipe all your village out. It'll never end. But again, when you look at Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 20, it's the same law. Listen to what it says here, Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 20. I for breach for the breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. He has caused a blemish in a man, so shall it be done unto you again. The same thing is mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 21. Exactly the same thing, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth and so forth and so forth. So, does it give you a blanket command to do what you want? Let me explain, because the Pharisees used this and brought a woman and broke the word of God. Stone her! Excuse me, you've got to have two witnesses that should see what this woman did. And by the way, where's the man? You take right off the back 
And that's what the Lord does. Always beat up the woman, the children, the aged, and those that have no. That's very, very common even today in, in Iran. It's the law. Let me just explain why this was there. Oh, Israel has a right to do it. Oh, the Arabs have a right to do it. Oh, these people have a right to do it. Hold your horses. He broke your tooth. If you're so keen, where did he break it? Here. Then go and break here, but make sure the second teeth is broken. Then he has a right to break three of your teeth, okay? Where did he break? Here. Break that teeth if you're so insistent. He took my eye out. You want to press charges? Yes. Go down and take off his eye. One eye. Don't touch his mother. Don't touch his papa. Don't touch his children. Don't touch his cousins. Don't touch eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. That is used to exterminate people. No, explain it. Moses knew what he was writing. So there won't be what is a vendetta. A whole tribe must be killed because he killed mine. He killed my sons, so every one of their sons must be killed. No! Toot for a toot. Eye for an eye. Leg for a girl leg. Clearly, if your donkey was killed by that man, if he doesn't pay, kill his donkey. But don't kill all his donkeys. Now we must realize Jesus clarifies this when he said, neither will I condemn you, go in peace. Because it is mercy God seeks. What is it that God looks to? This is the law enshrined in the temples all over Israel and America. Micah 6, 8. He has shown thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Excuse me, he had shown thee, O man, what is good. And what is it that God requires of you over and above your truth for truth, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. If God was looking for truth for truth, this church would be empty, including me, would be empty in this pulpit. We would not be here. Thank God for his mercy. So the Lord Jesus is clarifying in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38. Listen to what he says. You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you, verse 39, that you resist not evil, but whatsoever shall, whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn the other two. That's not to say, oh, come on, beat me up. It simply says, don't retaliate. There's a better way of doing this. Someone screams and calls profanity when you're driving. You open the thing, and what did he say? Your mother's mother's mother. You say your papa, your mama, and the whole tribe. Bam, 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 bam. Fill in the blanks. Before you know it, you just created a third world war. The entire people will be there, and you have just created a war. 
So, excuse me, just calm down, just calm down. And this anger dissipates because you reacted not negative in a positive way. You have every right to scream profanity if you want to, but resist it. And that's what it simply means. The law was given so that a whole tribe would not be killed. You know, what is interesting is when you look into the Bible, God judges. You've seen the lady with the blind eyes called Liberty. God is in a way, doesn't look at your color, your culture, your religion. God looks at your action. What is in your heart? I mean, it comes from your heart and God looks deep down and he could tell you, excuse me, all these actions, but your heart is evil before the Lord. When you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 21, this is the time of David, a great man of God, the sweet psalmist of Israel. So in 2 Samuel chapter 21 and verse 1, look at how it says, There was famine in the days of David three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. Excuse me. Look at God's word to the king, the first king of Israel. It is because of Saul and his bloody house. Excuse me, God, these are your people. That's the king. You selected him. Samuel oiled him with anointing. He sang prophecy among with the prophets. He's an anointed. Yeah, God said, he did this bloody thing. David decided to build a temple and God said, no, your hands have blood in it. You can't build it, your son will. Oh, David said, I want it. God said, no, just prepare. But David, your son Solomon would. When you look at the Gibeonites, it's too lengthy, but in brief, let me say, in Joshua chapter 6, 7, 8, you're going to find nations after nations after nation after nation falling down before the triumphant uh, Joshua. And his was in chapter 1, meditate on the word, think of what God says. Don't think of what other people tell you, the word, the word, the word, the word. Go, base it on the word of God. And this man, before he died, there was yet more land to be conquered, but he gave the inheritance. What an amazing man. He made one mistake. When you come to chapter 9, the Gibeonites were so scared of Israel that they steadily came in and said they come from a far place. And they said, make us a deal that you won't kill us because we are faraway people. And Joshua said, I make a deal with you. When you come to chapter 2, Later on, Joshua relates, oh my God, these guys are just across. They tricked us. They came like they came from afar. Their basically bottles were full of dust. We really fell hook, line, and sinker for this. And I shook my hands and said, yes, we'll spare you. The people of Israel were so angry. And what did Joshua say? I keep my word. When I said, I will be there, and I will be your friend, I will keep my word. A word is very important. So now, in chapter 10, the Gibeonites are surrounded by other kings. They said, let's finish the Gibeonites. And Gibeonites were no match for all the enemies. There were many kings, including 21 kings, coming against Gibeon. 
And Joshua rode with his finest men and stood there and protected the Gibeonites and killed all those kings. In fact, he had his head over them. Why? I made a promise. I intend to keep it. And he kept it. What you find is so incredible is when you read this passage with Saul, in his zeal he did it, a false zeal, like New Testament Saul. He thought he was doing God a favor, but it was a false zeal. It was presumed to be zeal, it was fanaticism. And many religions feel it's such a great thing, and crusade too was a fanaticism. Christendom had fanaticism. Islam has fanaticism. Hinduism Hinduism has fanaticism. Buddhism has. Look into the word. And yet, great men come out of Israel. Great scholars come out of Israel. Great businessmen come out of Israel. So in India, so in China, so in America, so in all the world. But it is so important we honor our word. 1948, when Israel was created, not just a handshake, they signed, it's going to be a two-nation and Netanyahu is the extreme right-wing, like the Indians have, the prime minister who's there. Extreme right-wing. Forget about the promises. Even though rules and regimes change, you keep the promise that you made. Here he signed when Israel was made a nation, two nations. And now you change the rule and you say, yeah, yeah, yeah it's a total lie. And this is a terrible situation. When you think about what takes place in the case of David, let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1. And let's go to verse 2. Samuel, uh, David now goes, the Gibeonites, and he tells the Gibeonite, and certain of them, the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel. We know that. They steadily made themselves part of it, but of the remnant of the Amorites and the children of Israel had sworn over them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and not to God, to the children of... Yeah, we are actually putting all the arms in because whether it's Mr. Biden or Mr. Trump, they need to be elected, not principles. I got to get elected. And here he had sworn to the children of Israel and his zeal and now what do you think the Gibeonites do? Verse 3. And therefore David said unto the Gibeonites, What shall I do? This famine is all over us. And wherewith shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? The inheritance of the Lord. You Gibeonites, you got to bless us. Verse 4. And the Gibeonites said unto him, We will have no silver, we will have no gold of Saul, nor his house, neither for us shall thou kill any man in Israel. We don't want anybody else killed. He's responsible. He's not alive. What shall you say then I will do for you? In verse 5. They answered, the man that consumed us, that hated us, that brought this tragedy, that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the coast of Israel. And verse 6. Let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us that we may hang them up to the Lord in Gibeah of Saul. 
whom the Lord did choose. And the king said, and the king said, and the king said, I will give them. Excuse me? How could you betray your princely home? It's a promise, my friend. I need to get this famine out. Otherwise, there will be perpetual famine or there will be perpetual war in Israel. In verse 7, he spared Mephibosheth because he made a deal with his father, but he gave them seven men. Whoa, am I reading from Quran? No, I'm reading from the Bible. It's important we understand that. I want you to realize something about Jacob. He was, his name implies he's a con artist, cheater, schemer, but something happened in chapter 28, and then something happened in chapter 32. His name was changed from Jacob, a supplanter, to prince with God. So he sometimes is called Jacob when he acts in the flesh, like the New Testament calls old man, and then he's Israel when he acts with the things of God. He's called Israel. So Isaiah says, thou Jacob and Israel, like sometimes God will call you, hey, you that operate in the old man, and now you're operating the new man. So we carry with us two sides, even though we're born again. What you find interesting is in Genesis chapter 33, after he met with the Lord, and verse 3, listen to what Jacob did. I think we all need to take a lesson. Pride keeps us from doing that. As he passed before him, Jacob, before Esau, and bowed himself to the ground seven times. Hold it! Jacob bowing down before Esau, because he said, my brother, you may have felt that I offended you. Twenty years I suffered away from my father, but I want to do obeisance. Forgive me. You are spirit-filled. You speak with God. You must ask forgiveness if you're wrong. You are not about God. You're not about the law of God. And there are times, not just Israel, the church, not just the church, America must say, I'm sorry. I did it again. I made a mess of the situation. We got the money, but let me just tell you, we're offending people left, right, and fat. If the young prince is an educated man, he's a Western-oriented man, he's a great man, not like his father. He's banned all the Islamists. He moved out the mutawas from controlling Israel, which was the religious people. Nobody could do it. If you offend him too much, because he has a feeling too, he's an Arab, like you are a great prince, amazing king. They would say, why do we have to sell our oil in gold, uh, in, in, in dollars? You do that, Mr. King, I'll have to bring a card barrel of dollars to buy one bread, because the dollar would be worth next to nothing. You can't go on for this charat forever. You say, you have the might, you have the power. My friend, we have spent everything. All the last of it is going to Ukraine or Israel. There are people begging in America. Are you playing this political trick? It's time we be real. And here was a real man. Jacob bowed down and paid obeisance as he came near to brother, his brother Esau. And he said, forgive me, Esau came running. Excuse me? Edom, Esau, 
The father of Amalekites came hugging and they cried. That, my friend, is an answer to everything. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And let me just turn to one thing. Why is that peace is eluding us? Romans chapter 3 and verse 17 tells, they have not known the way of peace. It's because we don't know what peace is. What is peace? How is peace accomplished? Peace is not how. Peace is a who. When you turn to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, towards the end, one of the titles of the Messiah is, he is called the Prince of Peace. Let me just run in a nutshell. In the book of Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14, listen to what it says here. He is our peace. It's not how to have peace. Who is the peace? Jesus is our peace, who has both made us one and broken down the middle wall of partition. Is that thing separating you? Just let it be broken. He broke down the middle wall of partition, whether it be the wall of hatred or prejudice. And he made anything that is between us, he's broken down. And then in verse 15, not simply that, Having abolished in his flesh the enmity of the law of the commandments contained in ordinance for to make of himself twin one new man. It's not, you can be a Republican, you can be a Democrat, you can be a Palestinian, you can be an Israel, you can be an American, you can be a Chinese. But the most important, when you know him, you become one man. The fact is, you get to love no matter he's different from you. You are one man in Christ. That is important. And then when you go to 17, this is so important. So, uh, go ahead, let's go back to where it says, uh, verse 15, and look at towards the end. And having, verse 15, let's go to verse 15. And making peace, so making peace. So he is still in the process of making peace because he is prince of peace. He's making peace. And finally, in verse 17, it simply says, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and them that are nigh, even those that are near and those that are far. And today he's called us to be his feet, his hands, his voice, and everything that we would represent. And what do we preach? Oh, you see, I'm Republican, and I have to look at it from a... I'm evangelical, I have to look at it from an evangelical. I am my friend. If you're in Christ, you represent Christ. Speak peace. I understand. Every Israeli has a right to be angry. And I understand Arabs have a right to be angry, but you are a Christian. You have a right to stand up and say, peace, peace in Jesus' name. Why do I say that? Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9. That is so important. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called. Are you a child of God? peace. Speak peace in Jesus' name. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray that you've been encouraged by the word of the Lord. To learn more, please visit our website, highlandny.org, or our Facebook page, Highland Church, New York. Until next time, may God richly bless you.